Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, it's Laura. Welcome to another week, another episode of TMST. And this one, this is one of those episodes where I go into it thinking it's going to be one kind of conversation, it's going to be one thing, and then it turns out to be something else entirely, in the best way, in a very good way. So Brenda Davies is the guest today, and she is the author of On Her Knees, Memoir of a Prayerful Jezebel, which is an awesome title. But the book chronicles the pendulum swing experienced as she left Christian purity culture and then embraced LA's hookup culture, which is as interesting as it sounds. In the Gray is her podcast and a YouTube channel. And Brenda uses those spaces to challenge us to examine where we're living in extremes, whether it's religion or sex or our relationships. Brenda encourages us to open up and drop all of our dualistic black and white thinking. So she's taken on a big charge and something we talk about a lot here, right? The dualistic thinking, the problems with it, how it keeps us stuck in cycles of pain and judgment and really trapped. So this conversation went in all kinds of places. Like I said, I didn't know, I thought I knew where it was gonna go and I didn't know. I love when that happens most of the time. Uh, We talk about all the ways we disconnect from our bodies during sex and disconnect from our intuition when people want us to adopt an ideology that may not serve us. Brenda has this gentle, easygoing demeanor, but there's so much packed into what she's doing. Toward the end, she puts a period on all the ways we've armored up for battle and looked, she looked at me and she said, you don't have to protect the truth. You don't have to protect the truth. And I'll tell you, those words have been hanging with me ever since. So thank you for being here for another week. It matters. I love this conversation and I'm excited for you to spend some time with Brenda. Here you go. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Instead of talking about what you do, I want to talk about why uh, it, why you do it. You do the work. Why do you do this this work that you do? I essentially call myself an artist and a storyteller. I'm so sorry if that sounds so pretentious and annoying to anybody. <laughs> I know how it sounds, but really, like I remember, I came to LA to be a movie star, and then at some point when I felt very low and down and couldn't make that work. I sort of started surrendering and then I realized, oh, well, I'm actually just really fulfilled and happy when I'm telling a story. And that's where I shine. I could be at a dinner party telling a story or using my body through acting or writing a book or any number of vehicles. But the main thing was 
being a storyteller. So I guess I'm just the biggest advocate of being a place where people can share their stories because I know telling your truth is so emancipating and that's where trauma can begin to heal. I really feel that pain festers in the dark, shame, fear, they all fester in some dark part of us. And if you just shed light on it by like throwing it out there and putting it on a platform for you or maybe even a very trusted person or group of people to see, then all of a sudden that's a place where you can play with it and begin to heal and begin to figure out what to do with it. I originally just wanted to write a book about my experience surviving this, you know, puritanical evangelical sexual ethic and how detrimental that had been to me because I'm a very sexual person and have been as long as I can remember. So that was my Mm -hmm. particular damage that that institution gave me. I had written this book. I took it to publishers and I said, you know, here it is. And they wrote back and said, we like the material, but we don't think there's an audience for this. And in their defense, this is pre-Trump. So I think a lot of people in mainstream culture didn't realize how pervasive and insidious this toxic theology was like the reason your children are getting pregnant in numbers that they shouldn't have to be as teens is because, you know, of a lot of this puritanical stuff that is bred in this place called church. So I went online and I was trying to find sex positive Christians or LGBTQ affirming Christians. And instead I discovered to my dismay, the same toxic theology being spread to a very large degree, to very malleable young audiences on YouTube by women in their Mm -hmm. 20s um, with affluence or if not affluence, at least privilege that was not addressed. And um, my tipping point was a girl living in San Diego with her blonde hair and her husband saying she doesn't use birth control because she trusts God with her fertility. And I lost my mind. I was storming around my house and I, I was so angry that I picked up a camera, centered myself in love and prayer and started speaking out. And then that became its own beast, which was called God is Gray. I wrote a book. I made a project called God is Gray. And then I wanted to expand and do bigger. So I changed it to In the Gray, which is the new season I'm on. And this is where I really yes. want to stretch wider and be like, well, there are so many things in the gray. I've talked about religion. It's still a core piece of who I am and my story, but I'm ready to address more because back to the very beginning, I think it's just whatever compels people to share their stories and heal. That's beautiful. And yeah, so it's, I wanted to ask what the transition from God is gray to in the gray was about. Yeah. So basically, when I first started God is Gray, I knew that I had an abortion. I knew I had a sailor mouth. I knew I had been in an abusive relationship (laughs) and that I'd slept with an innumerable amount of men. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I also knew very well that culture and what it feels to be indoctrinated. And in that indoctrination, you're told that you can assess good or evil in this very clear binary, like good girls wear pink and bad girls wear black. And you're talking about purity culture. 
Because you're saying this culture. Exactly. In church culture. Um, Because I started being indoctrinated into this thought when I was 12 years old. That was the first time I went to a born-again evangelical church. And they told me, God cries when you masturbate. And you are diminished and your worth is less if you let a penis penetrate you. And all of those lovely messages. Um, (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) God cries when you masturbate. What? That's why the ocean is so full. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a book. In and out. Yeah, maybe that's your next one. I just couldn't let that go without without pausing for a minute on the absurdity. I was an anomaly among all of my friends in LA because I moved to Los Angeles when I was 19 and I just wanted to be a movie star and I was meeting people that practiced completely different faiths, people that were completely atheist or whatever, hypersexualized women that just like run around LA and bang men in bathrooms and um, being at the Playboy Mansion with the girls next door and like seeing well, certain celebrities do cocaine off of tables. Like it was a very jarring entrance, but I loved it because I always felt very inspired by Jesus hanging with the sinners. I always fancied mm-hmm. myself the one who was called to hang with the sinners. And again, it, yes, I still saw it in that binary. I was out there to save them. <laughs> so God is great. I, I mean, I'm assuming it. you decided to switch because you were moving on from talking about the church and God in that sense as the, as the black is the binary and into the rest of life, which you've started to do. In this space, a lot of it is like a call out, like, look at this shitty pastor, look at this horrendous thing that happened over there. If I am dead honest with myself, I picked up the camera the first time with a sense of rage, a yeah. righteous anger, if you will, like really, really distraught that you know, a young woman with less affluence or money could be steered into an unwanted pregnancy because this girl was so irresponsible with all of these young voices. And um, that just felt like such an injustice. I think a lot of beauty was done in that. A lot of people wrote me beautiful messages about no longer feeling suicidal ideation because they realized they'd be accepted as a queer person innumerable, beautiful letters from people escaping this ideology and this abuse and how it had been beneficial for them because it was really about freedom. We have to emancipate ourselves from this black and white thinking. And then I was doing it, doing it, and I still am a Christian and I had a very strong sense. The last video is your abortion video. And when I was priming you in the beginning, like I, I crept out slowly because I'm like, if I come out with my first video and I'm like, listen, you fuckers, <laughs> you know, right. I had an abortion and I'm still a Christian and like they wouldn't listen. So it wasn't about hiding. It was just like, you know, taking them on a journey so that by the time I admitted I had an abortion, they would be primed to hear it and to empathize with mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. And I also was worried because I really wanted to debate and speak to people about abortion. And if anyone knew I had one, I imagined or slash knew that they would take me less seriously and they would categorize me as a certain kind of person, which is amazing that someone with the lived experience would be less credible to speak on it. But that's the way this religious thing works. (laughs) Yeah. And there's just some topics that you can't lead with because they will shut people down. I want to give you credit, though, because you, you, the way that most people start talking about something is 
and and get inspired is oftentimes because they're angry, because they are filled with rage, because something is so offensive to their soul that they have to speak out. And the first act is knowing what you're against. That's oftentimes the way it starts. You know, I'm reading a lot of Richard Rohr right now. So this is like fresh in my mind. Um, I'm reading Falling Upward and talking about the first half of life and the second half of life. And the first half of life is is a lot about that. It's building up this container, this ego structure that we need. We need to have a healthy ego. And then what most people do is, is fail to do is transition to the second half where you're integrating it. So it's it's a perfectly normal progression. <laughs> That's beautiful. If I'm aligned with Richard Rohr, then I know I'm doing okay. <laughs> right? There's so much in there. And he's become more and more of a sort of North Star for me. I'm wanting to guess that it's because he's a mystic. You know, you don't have to have a religious affiliation to listen to the wisdom of a sage or like, you know, it's like reading Rumi is like reading Roar is like reading C.S. Lewis. They really, you know, overcome those religious boundaries and speak outward because they are coming from a more mystical place. But you you have to earn that, you know, you have to, you got to go through all the things to get there. Nobody gets there without making a fuck ton of mistakes and, and being a student for a really, really, really long time. My whole uh, inspiration for this season is Rumi. Beyond all wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I will meet you there. And I want in the gray to be that field. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy. And we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. This is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one-time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description. And then please head over to tmstpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks. So... When describing your progression through life, you have shared that you leaned really, you said this, these are your words, I leaned really hard into purity culture and then into hookup culture. I see them as two polar extremes, both leading to feeling disconnected and disembodied from yourself. Being So that's the end of your sentence. Being disconnected from ourselves during sex is something that I completely get. It's more common than we want to admit. And I, I want to hone in on that feeling 
we're talking about sex now, by the way. (laughs) I want to hone in on that feeling of using sex to disconnect yourself. So how did you arrive at this realization that that's what you were doing? Um, That I was like disconnecting from myself. That was a very long process. And I always want to tell everyone that because you can't just cakewalk out of these things. So many of us are told lies about our body and our sexuality since we're born. Like since you're in the tub and you touch your vulva for a second and someone swats your hand, you know, you get those messages really, really, really young. And um, that said, I was really developing, just progressing as I'm always like almost going to say normal. (laughs) It's not normal, but like the typical uh, Typical. progression that you would notice and someone's burgeoning sexuality while going through puberty. It's just like desire for sex, wanting it all the time, thinking about it all the time. Basically, I remember when I look back that originally my sexuality is developing. I'm super horny. I've been masturbating since I was three that I can remember. And I am fantasizing that there's this guy, Steve Urbanski, who looks like Paul Walker. Oh, God. Yes, I was talking to someone about Paul Walker today. Wow. Two Paul Walker references. He was an angel on top of looking like an angel. Yeah, Mm, he was just a gem. But he was like so, so hot, you know, just the tan skin, the bright blue eyes, the like casual whatever. And I used to fantasize that he would pick me up from his ha- from my house in his car, like take me on a date, buy me flowers, and then lay me in the back of his car and we'd make love. And those were my masturbation fantasies when I started realizing that penetration was something that I desired. And then I very shortly thereafter, probably only even months after, I had a friend invite me to her youth group. And at that youth group, I was taught these things about my body. And I heard, you know, I have to keep sex. I have to be pure until I'm married. And I really know now that I fell for that because I always felt a very divine connection that was intuitive. Like spirituality has always been a really deep piece of me since I can remember. So Mm -hmm. someone took that very pure just childlike intrigue about this like entity that is everything that loves me. And then said that feeling you have that thing doesn't want you to do this or you'll, you'll make him cry. Mm. You'll hurt him. And that really hit me. I was like, no, because divinity was so precious to me. I was like, I would never want to do that. Thank you for letting me know that that hurts divinity. I fell for it. I was the purity culture queen after that. And Then I noticed, looking back, that my fantasies had all these obstacles. So then Steve Urbanski (laughs) picks me up in his car. We drive to the church. We get married. We do the garter belt ceremony. Then we go back to the hotel, and then we have sex. Your fantasies take like four hours (laughs) to complete. Yeah, and then, of course, all of that becomes you know, mentally exhausting, all the gymnastics of it. And I don't know when it evolved, but I did have like a spanking fantasy as used to be my original masturbation material before I knew what sex was. <laughs> now I'm telling you everything. Um, yeah. So then uh, at some point he would pick me up in his car, lay me down and ravish me. And then it was just like passing everything 
and the mental gymnastics ceased. And it was like, this is not my fault. So I'm allowed to fantasize about something that's not my fault. A lot of Christian women have ravishment fantasies because of this. And a lot of women have ravishment fantasies in general. Yeah. So all of these, I describe it in my book on her knees too, as like my puberty, my puberty was like a tree growing through cement because that's how fierce and intense and beautiful my puberty was and my sexuality was, but they cemented it over with these toxic doctrines. And then I immediately started separating my desire from, you know, what I was allowed to do and my body from what was acceptable to God. And all this division begins, which for any Christian listening, I was fascinated when I learned that the word Satan is actually rooted in a word that means the divider. So it's more technically satanic that you are dividing pieces of yourself into binaries of good and evil than it is godly. Wow. I didn't know that either. Wow. I have to thank you because I've never really – it's the first time it's really gone – like clicked to, to, with me in a different way that I can go, okay, I, I can – I get how that would work. I would also like to add that – that's the way I describe my experience. And I do think it resonates with a lot of people, but then there's also a lot of people who were terrified of hell, you know, like you're not allowed to wear, like watch scary movies, but your mom comes in your room and is like, don't forget if you masturbate, Satan's waiting for you for eternity. It's just right. They actually believe that hell is real and it, that they're going there. Yeah. That's that's like you're you're a child or you're a teen. Like I was definitely told about hell from childhood and then that so that is like solidified as a reality because why would every adult you trust tell you a lie? And right. of course right. I know why now, but you know, because they believed a lie themselves. But you are trusting, you know, you're a child with adults. So then by the time you you know hell is real. Um, then you're primed to hear during puberty that the way to send you there is being gay. And then you're like, oh, shit. And here's a four Bible verses that beat you over the Prove head it. with it, which my friend Rocky mm-hmm. Roggio is doing beautiful work. Her documentary is called 1946 because the word homosexuality mm. wasn't even in the Bible until 1946. But, um, you know, there's so much dishonesty that's passed down generationally, decades, centuries old. And, we're contending right. with all of those old structures. So, you know, if you think a 12-year-old has enough tenacity to not believe all of that <laughs> after all right. that history, you know, it's like we're primed for it, unfortunately. When did you kind of just do you sway, swing to the other side of the pendulum with behavior around sex, but you were still like you were using it to disconnect still? Like there was a part of you that you couldn't be with? Yeah, so I um, have defined it as this pendulum swing. I see purity on one side um, and then hookup culture on the other side because I really do like telling people that I don't like hookup culture. I don't like either. I'm not an extremist person. I really believe we need to be centered in the gray, obviously passionate Mm -hmm. about that. Um, So the reason they're like almost parallel extremes is that with purity culture, I was held up really unnaturally so because if you don't have the conviction something embodied in your gut 
you're just going to be following what someone else is telling you to do. And that sort of belief system is going to crumble really, really quickly as soon as it's challenged. And people are challenged by all different means of beliefs or ideologies that they wrongfully have and hold. For me, my pendulum broke and swung to the other side when my husband admitted that he had been cheating on me. Because in the church, I was told, if you're a good girl, if you're perfect, you'll live heavily, happily ever after and have a million orgasms and ride in the sunset forever and ever. So because they had told me a lie, when as soon as that lie showed itself, then I was angry at God. And I remember I was praying and I was like, God, why would you tell me? Like, why would I be a good girl? Why didn't you come through on your promise? And whether you believe it's in uh, the voice of God or my intuition or whatever, I believe it's divinity. I just heard, who told you that? And I Mm -hmm. recognized this was no internal compass of mine. This was no deeply held knowing in my gut. Pastor Scott told me, the guy who wears his puka shell necklace and flip-flops when I was 12 years old. And it's like, maybe just maybe that guy was not representing divinity's feelings on this but unfortunately society with its lack of comprehensive sex ed in this country especially and all of the hypersexualized images versus the chaste good girl images and all again all of these dichotomies that were given like I didn't have the wherewithal to like if you if you have a pendulum and an extremist belief system you're not just going to like even out in the middle and like be safe no. and sound and be like, Oh, now I'm here no. centered. It's like, you got to do a little swing and like, hopefully someone's there to help you not make it swing too far. But I think that really is where the most atrocious things come along. Like when you look at uh, pedophile priests in the Catholic church, you're like, what the mm-hmm. hell swung that pendulum? You can definitely argue that personalities like that are drawn into those places. But I would also argue that, uh, repression of a human need as important as sexuality will do some dirty things to the human mind if if forced to like again fester there in that place where it's not a true conviction it's not deeply held that's just a psychological nearly scientific truth it's just how we work people give Freud a really hard time but he wasn't wrong about a lot of repression in the subconscious. He had, he got a lot right about that. So, uh, and you don't have to look far to see it, you know, it's everywhere. So what, um, how are things now when it, in regards to sex and the pendulum, where would you say you are now? How, how, how is it? It's actually really great. It's funny because (laughs) I feel like in the Christian spaces, I'm often accused of dissenters by just being a hoe that I'll just bang anybody. And I'm like, no, that was me years ago. I actually get laid way less than I would like to because, (laughs) because having sex with sexual integrity is actually an experience that requires like your adherence to integrity. And there's a lot of Uh, disingenuous or like at worst harmful sex you could have with others or at best maybe just like I don't know just not really coming with your utmost which I trust me don't judge anyone on any part of that but my pendulum was like I remember I was sitting down with my roommate after I was like getting a divorce 
I cheated on my husband in retaliation and then finally had the courage to leave him. And then I was like, you know what? I'm not going to count because I had given the narrative that one or two is too many in Christianity. And then in society, I felt like women got a cap of four or five, maybe, you know, you're like, you're going to, you're a hub. Partners. Right. Before you're, before you're something. Right. Yeah. And I have slept with way more people than five. (laughs) Yeah. And I really, I needed permission to do that. I really needed it. I don't know. I don't know who I would be today if I hadn't allowed myself to dive into my sexuality. But another reason I share my story and do the work that I do is because I want children and and people to heal the inner child in them that wasn't raised in this centered place of sexual integrity because both extremes have pain for you there that is unnecessary in an experience that could be so divine and beautiful. Even if it's, you know, just banging against the kitchen sink for five seconds, like it still can be really integrated and embodied and, and divine. So that's right. what I want for everybody. Hookup culture, I had a lot of traumatic experiences looking back, like when the Me Too movement happened and me and all my friends are suddenly looking at each other like, oh, we were raped way more times. Like my friend who got raped once is all of a sudden like, no, I guess it's more like seven. For me, I, I considered my rape myself raped zero times and now I'm at a one and a half, you know. And it's all those issues of like not being taught our bodies are valuable or that they're less valuable if we quote, give ourselves away as women and uh, just not knowing that, you know, the concept of blue balls too, the fallacy that you'll actually bring a man pain if you don't let him come. Like these are the narratives our 80 babies had to contend with. So I'm like, go easy on us, Gen Z. We have a lot to overcome with this. Yeah. It's so true. I don't know any – I mean, I really literally don't – if I think about just my friend group, I don't know anyone that was raised with like a sense of sex, healthy sexuality. Not, And it's not that it was, you know, horrible and on these big extremes, but – I think that that's it's a beautiful message is what I'm saying because it's like we still sex is still one of those things that we're like we don't know how to talk about it you know and I I my friend who's going through divorce sent me we talk on WhatsApp she sent me this message and it was about I'm it was about masturbation and she was like uh, can we talk about it don't think less of me can we talk about it I was like oh my god I a I will never think less of you and B, I love talking about sex, so let's do it. She's like, thank God, I had a feeling you'd be willing. And, you know, we're in our 40s. We're like mid-40s, not even early. It's like, it's time. So I'm going to read an excerpt from your book, uh, which is called On Her Knees, Memoir of a Prayerful Jezebel. Great title. The Brandon that's named in is the man in, uh, who is your husband. You, you call him Brandon, and you're no longer together. This is something from the book. Brandon bled from a father's wound that no woman could heal. I know it's a cliche to blame dirty deeds on dirty dads, but cliches exist because they're often true. If someone's a jerk, there's a root, a reason. But let's not confuse a cause with an excuse. We leave our mama's wombs and crawl into this mess. The challenge of life is to navigate the violence 
be it tangible or emotional, while maintaining kindness, lest we become the evil ones, or to put more gently the hurting people who hurt people. First of all, it's beautifully written, really. And you have said that I believe you can hold love and forgiveness for people, but still hold them accountable for their problematic behavior, theology, and actions. This is something that's relevant to every single person. So how the hell are you approaching that? I love that that's the quote you pulled. I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) I'm just being thoughtful because like there are personal things going on swimming in my brain today. And Mm -hmm. I'm having a day where I'm contending with the fact that I truly believe people are on a pendulum swing of their own right now. And I was on it too, because we began deconstructing this Christian system and recognizing the theology there that was black and white and didn't allow for mistakes and required you specify certain leaders who have absolute moral authority. You cannot waver from it. They will intimidate you, publicly humiliate you, drag you in front of their congregation if you step out of line of what they're telling you God says is true. And I thought that we had centered and come to a very beautiful place and we were all just going to get out of this religious trauma and just soar into paradise together. (laughs) I am that ridiculous of a little hopeful being, I think. Um, And instead, I'm now recognizing that during George Floyd's murder, the tide had turned and I recognized something I'd never noticed or had never had happened before, which is that I posted a picture of my, what my father's, I keep saying this wrong, my baby's father. It was his birthday. (laughs) I was making him a cake. It was like green frosting with chocolate chips. And I posted it on a story as you do. And I got an onslaught of messages from white women. And I don't even like specifying what race people are. I'm sick of that as well. But um, I just happened to notice they were like the demographic that I belong to. And they were telling me, you know, this is so inappropriate, whatever. They were really beginning to indoctrinate me into a new ideology is what I now recognize because now there is a strict adherence to words you're allowed to use and not use, ways you're allowed to express yourself, people you're supposed to listen to, people that you are supposed to just leave your body, leave your intuition, don't worry about whether or not they hit you a certain way or whether or not their character is upstanding. They have a new ideology that is just absolute truth. It's just like a one ideology of the pendulum swing to another ideology. And what I'm recognizing now is within the gray, and this is just my personal story, I think that anyone who has been through 2020 and all the following years will recognize that they've had major reckonings with their personal lives, their careers, their spirituality, their sense of safety in the world, their friend groups, Mm -hmm. like who's on the Trump side, who's on the other side, like so much division and agony and death, people lost family, Mm -hmm. like this is no easy time. And, And we collectively went through it together, even though we went through it in completely different iterations and ways. And I really believe that people have like put their foot to the grinder and they want to make something beautiful of it. And those are the people that I see 
they're not better than anyone else, but they're the ones choosing to move past these grieving processes and into like, okay, so how do we fix this? Like literally the planet is dying. Like, can we stop yelling at each other? What are we going to do? And, um, and then there's a simultaneous resistance to it because we've sort of been indoctrinated. It's like people are comfortable with black and whites because it feels like there's a sense of safety there because it does offer you absolute truth and absolute truth feels really comforting in the midst of so much crisis and pain. And I don't blame anyone for clinging to a structure that feels like, Oh God, thank you. The answer, like, of course, but again, being a Christian, I was told through my ancient texts that the answer is love. And as pedestrian as that sounds, like, where are you coming from? And I know I'll make mistakes and I know I'll have opinions that are probably disrespectful or, or reek of white supremacy in my body that I didn't recognize. Like, all of these things are still absolutely true, these blind spots we have to address. But, you know, how are we doing it? Like, who are we kicking out of the off, you know, out of the conversation that we should be engaging with? Because unless we like center in some sort of agreement that we're working towards love, I don't know what we're going to do. I was on um, Nick LaPerera's Let's Give a Damn podcast the other day. And I was talking about how we waste so much time and energy because the... Republican side will say, um, you know, abortion is terrible. It's a sin. We must make it stop. And then the other side says abortion, no matter what, it's healthcare. And what both, let's say there's two women yelling in a parking lot about this. What they're both not realizing is they actually are both arguments rooted in humanity and wanting the best for people. And if we could somehow just address like, wait, where are we aligned though? Like, is this, and that's what I really believe Jesus was talking about. Like then love is there. Then like I tell so many pro-lifers, the statistics of, of black women dying in childbirth or, you know, not teaching kids comprehensive sex ed and how many abortions will result. And they'll still like hold to these ideologies of like, no, the black and white answer is we protect them by never talking about sex and saying to save it to marriage. But it's like, if they would just understand we're playing for the same team and it came down to, we need to help these women. We need to prevent death. Look me in the eye. We have the same goal. We just, then I would much rather argue about which policy saves people's lives. I would much rather yell in a parking lot with another woman about like, that's not the best way to save black women from dying in childbirth. This is the best way to save black women from dying in childbirth. (laughs) That's the argument I want to have, you know, like what the fuck are we doing, everybody? It sounds like what you're saying is acknowledging that we're all in process is really the only way as hard as it is. And this is, my work constantly is giving people the dignity of their process, even when it's it makes your stu- even when it makes you sick to your stomach, right? Where we fall into difficult territory is when we claim that we're so possessed by ideology that we claim that there are hard stops where there's not hard stops. When we're creating uh, lines when lines are actually doing more harm than good. Meaning lines like this is black and this is white, this is right and this is wrong. When creating that split 
does more harm, period. And it's actually very, I mean, if you study every wisdom text, you will find that the way is the middle way. Oftentimes it's being able to hold a lot of nuance and still in that space claim the space that you hold, right? And that's what I see that Jesus did. And like I said before we started to air, you know, we kill our prophets. We kill our prophets. We kill if you look down the line, Gandhi, Jesus, MLK, like it, it goes on and on and on. We kill our prophets. We can't hear what they're saying until much later. Yeah, I had a friend. She's like a very witchy, powerful woman, and she's doing amazing work herself. And she's like, well, at least they can't kill us anymore. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Think about the Salem witch trials, even like all of it. Like any woman who just used plant medicine could risk dying. Like I think women who read, women who read, you didn't forget plant medicine. You weren't supposed to read, you know, you weren't. you you couldn't write like go back a little further any anyone who wanted to request to have tablets and like ink no not allowed Her- heretic right yeah people have that profit energy like you don't have to have a big platform to have it like you can be the uh, there's a lot of oh, there's more people that don't have platforms that are actually right yeah unfortunately but there's like some little sweethearts in Alabama, 16 years old, being the prophet at her kitchen table and like getting slaughtered for her ideas, which are gray. And like, that is beautiful. There's also this slippery slope fallacy, which is interesting because people, some people were like mad at me, like, oh, if you, if you kind of dip your toe into any right leaning thought, then before you know it, you're just like chugging energy drinks and listening to Jordan Peterson all day or something. And it's like, I used to hear the same, (laughs) I used to hear the same slippery slope fallacy at church. Like don't watch heterosexual porn. Otherwise you're watching pedophilia in two months. And it's like, these things are just not true. And like truth really does stand on its own. You don't have to protect the truth. And if it's not true for you, you will fall away from something like people you do risk, of course, deconstructing a system and leaving it completely because it no longer aligns with you. But I am, as someone who comes out of, on the other side of a lot of these things, tell you it's the most emancipating, liberating, beautiful thing to be in gray because then all of a sudden you don't have to draw hard lines at people and you don't have to be cruel and you don't have to decide the answers will keep you safe because they really don't. They really make the world more dangerous and scary. And if we're talking so much about Christianity in this episode too, the enemy is supposed to be the author of fear. That's explicitly stated. And we build these structures upon fear, especially upon the group think that if one of you strays, we have to kill them because like, you know, get them out of the way because they're no longer aligned with what we think or perceive as protecting us, which is black and white ideology. What I love that you just said is you don't have to protect the truth. You don't have to protect the truth. That's, yeah, that's one thing I'm going to sit with for, for the rest of the day. It was so great to talk to you, really. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So raw. it's a raw day. And I hope that I was articulate and kind. And I don't know, I, I want to be the great. best version of me, but it's, it's a raw day. You should, <laughs> hey, we're, yeah. Tell me something true is the name of the show. So you, you showed up and you did that. Thank you so much, Laura. It's been beautiful.
All right, thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. Cannot stress this enough, you can make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show, and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.